Well, again, good morning, family. So if you have a cell phone, open it up to Romans 11. Or use your Bible if you still use the... Uh, uh, I still prefer printed page as often as possible, except when I'm teaching up here. I, I find it very difficult to read without either big, thick glasses or a backlit screen. So I'm going to use this. But in Romans chapter 11... As we continue today, actually finish today, it's the final week in our series on the five solas, five phrases that came out of the, out of the Reformation some 500 years ago, uh, five phrases that crystallize, summarize five key biblical truths about our salvation. So far we have looked at the first sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our authority, Sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solas Christus, last week in Christ alone. And today we look at the last one, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. But hopefully you're there in Romans chapter 11. I want to read just four verses beginning with verse 33. If you'll follow along as I read. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Have you guys ever gone mountain climbing, anybody? Not not a lot. I guess it's because we live in Missouri. Not many of you. But uh, as a kid, I grew up, my family, we lived out in El Paso, Texas. And there were three of us brothers. And so my parents, I think for the sake of sanity, often took us out into the the, the mountains and we would go picnicking and always go mountain climbing and somehow us three boys survived our parents would just kind of turn us loose on the mountain they figured we couldn't break anything except ourselves and that didn't matter too much if we broke ourselves so (laughs) so we'd go to the uh, we were lived in el paso and the franklin mountains are right there kind of almost in the middle of the city it's kind of a horseshoe around the foothills of the the rocky mountains the franklin mountains there i noticed in in all those years of climbing mountains, hiking to the top, I noticed whether it was there or when we'd be up in New Mexico or Colorado or uh, since then, uh, even some of the taller hills here in Missouri, in places I've been like Haiti and Guatemala and in the Philippines and in Japan and in Israel and in Greece, I've noticed the same thing every time I climb a mountain, the same thing I do, same thing people who are with me do, and anybody else that goes up, I watch as they hike up to the top of a mountain. You get to the top, and what do you do? You just stop and go, ooh, pretty. (laughs) And you go and you look down at where you came from, and then you, you look all around, and you look off into the distant horizon to see if you can recognize stuff out there, and you're always wondering, what's just beyond where we can see? And you spend a lot of time up there. If you got cameras, you're taking pictures of all. Oh, look. Right? Every mountain I've ever been on, 
I've never just gotten up to the top and went, oh, okay, let's go home. You always look around. There's something about being up on top and looking at the wonder below. Well, as it were, the Apostle Paul has brought us here to the top of a mountain. Here in uh, Romans chapter 11. He's been taking us on a theological journey, looking at our salvation taking us climbing the hill, as it were, of our salvation. And in chapter 11, he, he reaches the peak. And in the verses we just read, he is standing on the, on the peak of the, the summit of the mountain. And that's his wow moment. As he looks and goes, looking at the awe, awesome view. To help us catch up to Paul, I want to take some time this morning and quickly review actually the first 11 chapters of Romans. We've looked at some of it over the last few weeks, but we're gonna, we, there's a lot we didn't cover and we need to get a little kind of flyover picture of everything that's happened to this point. And so we go back to Romans chapter 1 through 3, the first little segment of Romans. And in those chapters, it's all about rebellion and, and condemnation. What Paul does in those first three chapters that he helps explain, as we noted a few weeks ago, that every one of us is under sin. We are sinners and we are condemned. Hopelessly, helplessly condemned. And since God's glory is our focus this morning, it's worth noting, by the way, Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. You got your Bible there? Because we're just going to work our way through. And so we're going to, we won't hit every chapter or every verse by any means, but we'll kind of go sequentially through till we get back to chapter 11. Since God's glory, solo de gloria, glory to God alone is the focus, it would help us to understand that this problem of sin in Romans chapters 1 through 3 that has us all condemned before God, that our problem of sin has its roots in a problem with glory. Look with me at verse 17 in chapter 1, and what you see is that he talks about how, how sinful man has, has suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. Because God's glory is plainly seen in creation, and yet man refuses to honor God as God. Look at verse 21, and I'll, I'll read these verses here in verse 21. For although they knew God, it was plain in creation that there is a God. Have you noticed, by the way, that you can't help but look at creation and note that there is a Creator? The great folly of our generation is the, how a, almost a majority of people look at the creation and go, eh, it just all happened. It's as silly as we walk out of here after service today and sitting right in front of the doors in the parking lot is an F-18, which would mean it's probably on top of some of your cars, but that's okay. And it would be as silly as saying, oh, look what just happened while we were in church. An F-18 just appeared. It just evolved out of dust. Parts came swirling around from, you know, whatever, and pff, I mean, it's silly. 
We look at an F-18, we know somebody put an F-18 here. Somebody made it and put it here. It's obvious, and creation is more complex than that. And yet, anyway, for although they knew God, keep going, verse 21, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What man does in the face of the the obvious existence of an awesome, holy, all-powerful Creator God, man rejects God's glory and essentially he dethrones God and either puts himself or something else on that throne in place of God. Instead of glorifying God and being thankful, the Scripture says here, man rebels against God And he gives the glory to created things. And man considers himself in the process to be an enlightened genius. Well, these chapters go on to let us know that the curse of sin has infected and affected every one of us. Chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not not even one. Verse 12 of chapter 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 23 of chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, he makes it very clear in these three chapters, we are all guilty as charged and we stand condemned and there is not a thing that we can do to help ourselves. That's chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 3. In the second half of chapter 3 and on through chapter 5, what we find is that the the, uh, those chapters are all about gracious rescue. We, cons- we spent considerable time there over the past three weeks. These, these chapters are all about the gospel, which the gospel is another word for good news, about how we can be saved. God's justice demands punishment. Because we are sinners, the justice of God demands punishment which is hell. And God could have sent us to destruction as easily as you probably sometime in the last couple of weeks squashed a bug somewhere. Just like that. But for some reason in God's unimaginable grace and in His infinite wisdom, even before He created the first molecule of this universe, according to Ephesians chapter 1, God devised a plan of rescue, a way to save us. Before God ever created anything, He knew what we would do and He knew what would be needed to rescue us and God put a plan in place. I have no idea why, but He did. We've seen these past few weeks that these chapters outline for us that you and I are saved by God's grace alone, not by any merit or worth or value of our own, through faith alone, not by any other works we do, but only by trusting, believing God, believing in Jesus Christ, and that's the next thing, by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Salvation is a gift. It's nothing we can earn. 
And God's solution to our sin problem destroys every notion of human pride, human accomplishment, self-glory, because there is not a thing that we could do. Only God could save us. All we can do is receive the salvation He has provided and that He offers. We can receive it as a gift by faith. It's God's grace through Jesus Christ that we receive as a gift by faith. And so Romans 3.27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. All the glory goes to God. That's chapters 3-5. through Chapters 6 through 8 lays out before us a glorious destiny. As chapter 6 opens, it begins to deal with a very real problem. You see, if chapters 3 through 5 are correct, and simply by God's grace alone, through our faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, we are justified before God. We are declared righteous. We are declared right before God. As guilty as we were and as hopelessly condemned as we were, simply by faith, we are justified. Actually, the text puts it in the past points. We have been justified by faith in Christ alone. Well, if that's the case, if God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ and says you are justified You are declared righteous, declared right. Then how can you still be a sinner? And I know you are. I know your husband. I know your wife. I talk to your kids. (laughs) How can you still be a sinner if God has justified you and declared you righteous? Paul says, indeed. There is, as long as we are in this life, there will be a struggle within us between the new life that we have received through Jesus Christ and the old nature, the old sin nature that is still in us. There's going to be a battle, a struggle. But this great grace of salvation that God has given to us provides both a motivation and the power for you and me to live up to our new identity. To live according to the new life that Christ has put in us. But there is going to be a struggle. It's going to be difficult along the way. Flip over with me. We're in in chapter 6 through 8. So go to chapter 8. Actually, we'll get there in just a second. Keep your finger there. I'm gonna, as we, here's the reality is as we look to follow Jesus, God's Spirit is at work within us, changing us to help us move from living over here to living over here. We've been declared righteous by God, but there's a process of being transformed from living here to living here. The Bible, by the way, calls that sanctification. Being made holy. Second Corinthians chapter three verse eighteen says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
we had time to unpack that whole passage, what he's saying simply is that as believers, we have the Spirit of Christ in us, new life in us, and now as we look to Christ, as we look to grow in Him and to follow Him, that what happens is His Spirit works within us to transform us from one degree of glory to another. That whole thing, degree there, is letting us know it's a process that happens piece by piece, little by little, day by day. We're in the process of being changed, being transformed into the same image as the glory of the Lord. He's making us like Christ. It's a process that won't be complete till we get to heaven. And Paul says here in Romans 8, in the meantime, it's going to be a struggle. And Paul got very personal in this section and he says, I have this trouble because the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the very thing I want to do, I don't end up doing. And a wretched man that I am, and who's going to deliver me from this body of sin and death? In chapter 8, verse 18, if you're in chapter 8, look at verse 18. Paul says, for I consider, there's some good news, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, what Paul says is there's a day coming when the transformation will be complete. It's not in this life. It is when we are, when Jesus Christ comes back. Scripture says, by the way, we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But I digress. It's not part of my notes here, so I'll stop. There's a day coming when the change is going to be complete. And it's interesting that Our focus this morning, and as we're going through, we're focusing all about the glory of God and what he's talking here about, suddenly about the fact that we're going to be glorified. Let's continue. Verse 30 of chapter 8. It says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What he says is, man, from the beginning, before you, when God first chose you, to the point where you are justified, which is for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that's where we are now, declared righteous. But we aren't fully sanctified. We haven't been fully changed into what we will be. He says there's a day coming when we will be glorified, except he puts it in the past tense. God has already done it. It's so sure it's happening. He's called, he has, he, he has predestined, he's called, he has justified, and he has sanctified. Put it in the past tense, but it's still future. Confused? Don't be. It's a certain thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's going to happen. And that's goodness. But it raises a question. When it says here that we're going to be glorified, what does that mean? What does that look like? We're just going to radiate glory. It's going to shine. You're going to, what, is, what, is, what does it look like? What, that's a great question. We could, you know, we could bandy around ideas about what it, and pool our ignorance and have nothing, or we can go to Scripture and see what does Scripture say. Well, Scripture gives an answer to what that means. Find it over in First John. Dear friends. Now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So what will it look like when we're glorified? I have no clue. Because the Scripture just said, 
what we will be has not yet been made known. However, what else does it tell us? We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Whatever we're going to be transformed into, we're going to be like Jesus. Go back to, as we think about what this means, go back to Genesis chapter 1. God created Adam and Eve, right? In whose image did God create Adam and Eve? God's image, okay? So what's the purpose of, what was our purpose? When God created us in God's image, it means He created us in His likeness, in some way to resemble Him. We were, the purpose is that we were to reflect some of who God is in His character, His nature, in His, in His glory. We, He didn't create us as God, He created us in His likeness. Okay? So that was what we were created to do. What happens when sin came into the picture? We go back to Romans chapter 3, to the verse I read earlier. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Ah. See, sin messed this up so that what we were supposed to be as those who reflect the glory of God and some of the character and nature of God, sin has marred that so we fall short, way short of what God has intended. So what does it mean that we are going to be like Jesus Christ? What it means is that we are going to be like Him as we were supposed to be in the beginning, like God, to reflect some of His character, nature, and glory. Why does God have to glorify us to do that? Well, because, you know, you can't take a... You can't put the the energy of a nuclear reactor in a red plastic cup. <laughs> okay? You know, one of those little ones, solo cups. That you, it can't handle it. You and I can't handle the glory of God. You remember when Moses asked to see the glory of God? Just let me see. And God said, you can't handle it. You can't handle it. It'll destroy you. We're going to get an upgrade. We're going to get an upgrade. We're going to get version 2.0 or 10.12 or I don't know. (laughs) We're going to get the new and improved that can handle being reflectors of the glory of God. That's what he says here, being that, that when we're going to be glorified, it's not so that you and I can go around, look at me, I'm glorified. It's so that we can be those who can reflect the glory of God, which was our purpose back in the beginning. Isn't that awesome? Again, it's about God, but we are, as in all these things, we are the fortunate beneficiaries of God's grace in these things. Chapters 9 through 10. That's chapters 6 through 8. We have a glorious destiny. Chapters 9 through 10 talk about God's glorious plan. Or you might say, according to chapter 11, God's mysterious plan. Here, these chapters deal with some questions about the Jews. If you know anything about the Bible and you go back and you read the whole Old Testament, God, beginning in in Genesis, chooses a man, Abraham. And from Abraham, God is going to build a people. He, He chooses a people, the people of Israel. They are His people, God's people. 
And God Himself becomes man and comes to earth in the person of Jesus. The long-awaited promised Messiah comes to earth. And what did God's people do? They reject Him. They kill Him. And they still live, for the most part, in unbelief. And so the question comes, how does this fit together? If God had this wonderful plan from the beginning, before the creation of time, that He had this plan and He puts it in place, now what happens, how do you explain the Jews who were God's people who reject, was this a big oops in God's plan? And God now is like, oh, didn't see that one coming. Scratch plan A. And let's move to plan B. And now the Gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Good for us. <laughs> Lucky for us. And we're all in. And Okay, let's move on. No, 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 no. What this chapter tells us, well, there's an answer. Look in chapter 9. Paul asks a question that has the answer in it. What if, that's how he precedes it, verse 23, what if he did this, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In other words, Paul says, it was no mistake. It was no oops. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. And the plan was in order to, as it says here, for the riches of God's glory to be displayed as He did all this. God has used Israel's rejection as a way to bring us Gentiles to faith in Jesus. All part of God's plan to display His glory. But as you get to chapter 11, what you discover is God makes it clear that He hasn't abandoned His people, the Jews. Verse 1 of chapter 11, I asked them, has God rejected His people, Israel? The answer, by no means. Then you go down to verse 30 of chapter 11. Look there, follow along. For just as you were at one time disobedient, that's you Gentiles, as you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, so they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. God still has a plan for the Jews, by the way. You can read the whole passage and get into that. Because God made promises to them and God always keeps His promises. And God has done all of this, is the point, so that His glory will be on display, as I read back there in chapter 9. And with that, we're back on the summit with Paul. That just caught us up. All of those things are swirling around in Paul's mind as he writes these verses. Our horrible 
plight of condemnation and lostness, God's gracious rescue, our glorious destiny, and the mystery and the wonder of God's glorious plan. And now Paul says, verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Paul is saying, guys, I've only scratched the surface. Everything that I've said so far, it's only scratched the surface. Not a one of us fully understands the depths of God's grace and His love towards undeserving sinners. Not one of us truly comprehends the cost of our salvation. None of us grasp the complexities, the intricacies of all that God has done and is doing in order to save you and me and others. Here we are on the top of, of this peak having read all these things in, and seen all these things in these 11 chapters. And what we realize as we look back at where we've been and we look on and we see the horizon out there and what we realize is that past that distant horizon, which is as far as we can imagine about the wonders of and awesomeness of God's salvation, we realize that that's only the beginning. Paul is just almost speechless as he looks out at this view from the mountaintop. And amid all that grandeur, if you've ever been on top of a mountain looking, what you realize is as you look at the, just the vast expanse out there, as you realize, you know, as you look at how far down it is and as you watch the the horizon just disappear into just a fading mist. You realize just how tiny you are. And may I say that's what Paul is trying to help us see here. As we look at all that God has done and all the wonders involved in God's salvation of us, it's to help us see just how small we are. So it makes it all the more marvelous that He saved you and that He saved me. And it becomes obvious that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, for God's glory alone. It becomes obvious that our salvation is primarily not about our salvation. What do you mean? In other words, that our salvation is primarily about God's glory. Again, God is glorified and we are the fortunate beneficiaries. Yes, God chose to save us. But in the process of that, He is glorified. And the focus of all that is that He is glorified for it is nothing that you and I did of our own or nothing of our own worth. Nothing of We can't claim anything. So all the glory goes to Him, but in the process, we are blessed. And in the process, 
We're even going to be glorified. We're going to get an upgrade. And so the Reformers well asked the question and well answered the question, 1643, about a little over a hundred years after the Reformation kind of officially began, when they wrote the Westminster Catechism. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The main purpose why we are here, the main purpose why God has rescued us from sin, the main purpose for why He is giving us a glorious destiny, the main purpose for why all the whole thing with Israel and us and all this master, wonderful, intricate plan is the chief end of man is to glorify God. And in the process, we get to enjoy Him forever. So, what does this really have to do with tomorrow? As you go to work, as you go to school, as you do laundry, what difference does it make tomorrow? The answer to that, I think, could be a hundred different things, and we could take hours, something good to think about this week. But as I want to help us put shoe leather on it, what I want to do is go back to just one of the many ways that this truth, for God's glory alone, how it affected those the Reformers and those who came believers during the Reformation. And it will give us at least one clue of a way that we can put shoe leather on it today. The Reformers realized, again, that not only does God deserve all the glory for our salvation, but that the God's glory is the purpose for which He made us that we should now live for His glory. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 put it very clearly. 8 and 9 say very clearly the whole thing we talk about. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's read it. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, look at this. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our salvation is all about God, all about what He has done for us, not anything we could do. It's all about His glory, but for the purpose that we should then turn around and through our lives bring glory to Him. The Reformers grasped that. They understood that. The aim to live for God's glory, however, was given arms and legs during the Reformation, by some other truths that they gathered out of Scripture when they went to study the Scripture. And that goes back, by the way, to where all of these came from. It was take away the traditions of men and take away the tradition of the church and let's look at the Scripture as the only authority and what does Scripture say. Here's how we are saved and here's the reason why. It's to give God glory. They learned other things and What happened as they studied Scripture was that divisions between clergy and laity broke down. The idea that there are these people who are holy and these people who are, you know, you're the laity, you're the common folks. I'm the pastor. Honor me. Revere me. You need me. I'm the preacher, the priest. The difference between clergy and laity was broken down because it's not in Scripture. 
Also, the difference between the sacred and the secular broke down because you do not find that division in Scripture anywhere. And people had grown up with the concept that there's the, the sacred and the secular and the, the clergy and the, you know, the professionals, the holy people get to do the sacred things and we get to do just a few over here of the sacred things, but we're mostly stuck over here in the secular world and this is where we do the stuff and we, we only get the privilege and we, the duty, the responsibility, the requirement to try to do enough of the sacred things that maybe we can get to heaven. That was erased. The Reformers taught that every believer is a priest because that's what Scripture teaches. And that common activities and common callings in life could bring glory to God. So that the milkmaid, the lawyer, the doctor, the businessman, the carpenter, the homemaker, anyone who would put Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 into practice, which says, you do your work heartily as unto the Lord. And in fact, as the verse ends, it is the Lord Christ you serve when you do that. <laughs> Suddenly, the world is transformed. Now, you guys have heard this probably many times. But see, that was novel. That was, that was earth-shattering back then. You mean, as a janitor, I can do sacred work while I do my job? Absolutely. As a meat packer, I can do sacred work just by doing my job as unto the Lord. As a homemaker, I can do my job and it's sacred when I do it unto the Lord. Absolutely. What happened as these truths were, were brought out from Scripture is it began to transform people. And they made an impact on Western civilization over the next few hundred years. You see, the power of the common man, the energy of the common man was unleashed. And as believers worked hard seeking to honor God with their, with their work, they created a work ethic that got attention. As they took care of the poor, as they invested themselves, they built schools, they built hospitals. The desire to get a, get a better understanding of the world that God has made, of His creation, led to an explosion of interest in science. The desire to create and make beautiful things that would honor God and bring glory to Him created an explosion in the arts. Many artists, authors, and composers, people like Johann Sebastian Bach and George Frederick Handel, many of them began, began to sign their works, S-D-G, Sola Deo Gloria, Glory to God Alone. Even many buildings over the next few hundred years were stamped with Sola Deo Gloria, or SDG. Scientific societies, universities, national academies of art and culture were founded throughout Europe and on into America for the aim of glorifying God in every pursuit in life. So how do we put shoe leather into this 
truth. Well, first of all, if you're here this morning, you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Understand that God loves you so much He sent His Son to pay the cost of your sin. He offers you forgiveness and salvation, eternal life, simply by trusting in Jesus. That's the place to start. Secondly, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, what we need to gather from this is we need to never stop rehearsing. That means never stop reviewing, never stop remembering just how awesome is the salvation that God has provided for us. Remembering what, how lost we were, how big God's grace, what great sacrifice and what great cost our salvation has come and all He has done. The more that we remember that, the more it will transform our attitude and our living. And thirdly, the way to put feet on this is live to honor God. Whatever it is that you go to do tomorrow, do it soli deo gloria, for the glory of God. Not seeking to get credit, not seeking to be honored, but seeking to honor God. Let's pray. Father, this is big stuff, great stuff, lofty stuff. Stretches our minds, but it also touches our heart as we realize just how great is Your love, how big is Your grace. Lord, may it move us. May it move us to respond in thanksgiving, in worship. And may that worship not be just with lips, but with life. So that now, as someone who is redeemed, who is justified, who has a glorious future all because of Your grace, then in gratitude we live to serve You. Everything we do, with all that we have, with all that we are. In Jesus' name we ask.